Hello there, Derek Glover with the Monroe Church of Christ, and we welcome you to this midweek Bible study. And uh, this is a pre-recorded Bible study, as have several of them been this month on Sunday mornings and on uh, this Thursday evening midweek study, because I'm out of town as you're watching this. I am at the Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp, uh, working a session there. We're highly involved in the activity of that camp, and it touches the lives of so many young people in our region and in our area. So I'm glad to have this technology available to where I can still be here, even though I'm not here, because you're there. Uh, wherever you are and whenever you are watching this, I'm so grateful that we can do this. We are studying how we got the Bible, and we have covered a lot of territory thus far and some difficult stuff to this point. We've talked about how the Old Testament was formed and how those texts were written to, to become the, in the form that we have them now. We've worked through the New Testament and how it was formed, and we've reached a period of time in the centuries pro, uh, following the life of Christ as the canon is being formed. And what do we mean by canon? Well, we mean the books that are considered accepted as Scripture amongst uh, various groups of faith. You have both the Jews and the Christians who accept uh, different canons. Of course, the Hebrew Bible, which is made up primarily of the Masoretic texts that were done uh, prior to, or excuse me, after the time of Christ, when the Septuagint was the broadly accepted scripture of both Jews and Christians. That changed in the 300s, and the Jews began writing and forming their Hebrew Bible. Christians had their Bible as well eventually, but up until we had an actual printed a copy of these 66 books, it went through a lot of changes and a lot of revisions. And those changes and revisions had a lot to do with what Christians considered to be scripture. Because remember, they're writing, they're copying, they're passing around, they're writing letters to one another and other writings that are citing the source material, and they're carrying them around in a time when that was not legal. So they had to decide which of these are important enough to die for, which of these will we consider our Holy Scripture? And we can see, based on the things they wrote uh, in that time, which things they did consider to be Scripture. Some of them we still have as a part of our canon. Some of them we do not. We sometimes think that the way things are is the way things have always been. So when you look at your Bible, and if you're a Protestant like I am, uh, or at least a part of a group that's considered a Protestant group, you have 66 books. Um, but even the King James Bible up until the late 1800s had 80 books in it because we have some extras. We have some extras that were at times considered scripture by early Christians, considered scripture by Jews, but later fell out of that category and were taken out of certain canons. Now, this is going to be somewhat confusing to you. And I just want to start by saying that we have 66 books, 27 of them in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. All of those books are agreed upon by pretty much everyone. The Jews in their Hebrew Bible have the same content that we have in our Old Testament. It's organized a little differently, and some of the books are combined, like Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, for instance, or 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Samuel. They're combined into one book, so they'll number theirs differently, but we have all the same content. And even the 27 books in our New Testament, that's, that's accepted, that's settled on. That was settled on in the late 4th century. And there were many councils and meetings that were called by Constantine and by the, uh, the early Catholic Church 
to determine which books should be in. And there was disagreement. Remember the name Jerome we talked about last time who translated the Bible into Latin, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, when he translated that, he included these books that we don't have anymore in our Bible, but he did so with a preface that he felt that they didn't rise to the level to be considered scripture. They are important stories. They are important writings. They are significant and special and held in high regard, but they didn't rise to the level of Scripture. Now, further translation and revision of the Vulgate left out the preface. But in most Bibles, we find this collection of books, in, if they are there, they are in between the Old and New Testament, and they are often referred to as the Apocrypha. Now, there are some important, that's an important word. Uh, the Catholics will also refer to them as uh, deuterocanonical, which just means second canon, means it's not our primary canon, but there are books that are important or special or significant, and we want to have them preserved. Um, all, all Bibles, almost, um, in, in the Christian faith, uh, or in the Protestant wing of the Christian faith, had these books in them until the late 1800s. Uh, the British Informed Bible Society removed 12 books, uh, and that number you'll see different other places because sometimes they count those books differently. You have something like the additions to the book of Daniel, and that is the name of the book, the additions to the book of Daniel. Well, it has three or four different stories in it. Uh, and in some Bible versions, those will be listed separately, and in others, they're listed together. The books of Esdras, which is the Greek word for Ezra, uh, there's four of them in some Bibles that contain an apocrypha, uh, which I'll explain what that means in a minute. They have two books of Ezra, but it's, they've combined first and second and third and fourth. In the Hebrew Bible, it's much that way. Now, they, the first Ezra is basically Ezra and Nehemiah, which we have in our Protestant Bibles, but that would be first Ezra. And then second, or excuse me, yeah, second Ezra is actually third and fourth Ezra. And there's a fifth Ezra in there somewhere. It's confusing. And different churches, different groups, different faith traditions have different canons and number and order their things differently based on where their history felt these books and these works were significant. And I want to talk a little bit about the Apocrypha and what's in them. Uh, and this isn't to challenge or tear down your faith. Again, this whole discussion of how we got our Bible is to strengthen our faith. I think it is an amazing gift of God and an amazing test, uh, testament to the providence of God that uh, we have these stories preserved and that all throughout history as people were writing and, and writings were carried forth and preserved and copied and recopied and added to and edited and then sometimes lost but found in other forms later, the fact that we still have them is a wonder. It's a miracle that we have some of the stories we have because there are other civilizations and societies that have been completely lost because we don't have their stories. We know they existed, we have some artifacts, but we don't have anything they wrote. And yet we have the writings in the Old Testament of a, a nomadic desert tribe or people that somehow survived thousands of years. We have the writings of the earliest Christians preserved at least in some form and sometimes in multiple forms to arrive with what we have today, the 66-book canon. And all Christian traditions agree on the 66-book canon. And even the Hebrews agree on the 39 books of the Old Testament, even if they number them differently. We agree on some things. But we do have those extra books. And they used to be a part of all Bibles. 
they just are no longer. In 406 in North Africa, 406 AD, there was a meeting held and a council there met and included the books. The earliest time when those books start being removed has to do with the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Protestants, in reaction to the Catholics, wanted to go the opposite extreme, and so they were taking out some of these. Um, some of the translators, like Jerome, didn't want to include them because we can't find a lot of them in Hebrew. They're all in Greek. Now, we have found some of those manuscripts in Hebrew, some of them in Aramaic or Syriac or even a combination of those languages. Uh, some were among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and a lot of them were written in the intertestamental period or in the early centuries of the Christian age, telling stories about that intertestamental period. Uh, there's always been an effort to try and figure out if we have the right books and if we're considering the right things to be scripture or not. Okay, this has been really the journey of scripture. So as we've seen how it was formed, we've seen and we've tried to understand the concepts of how it was written, things like aggregation and editing and the Deuteronomist and the redactor, and then the writings in the New Testament and how those were preserved and and copied and passed along and even how they were refined and referenced in other materials, we begin to get a strong grasp on what is considered and what should be considered scripture. And yet, these 12 or 14 or however you want to number them remain. The Apocrypha, which means hidden things, okay, things that are hidden, because we don't know who wrote them. And there's questions about their legitimacy at times. There's questions about their uh, history and their authorship. What's not questionable is that all of them were a part of someone's scripture at some time, whether it be the Jews or the early Christians, someone considered them important. And as time has gone on, maybe we've said, well, they don't rise to that level. Now, if you happen to think that the Apocrypha has no place in Christian faith, then let me ask you, how many books do you own by Christian authors? How many, how many Max Lucado books do you have? How many books by Francis Chan do you have? C.S. Lewis. How many of these things have you read and have impacted your faith? Well, think of it very much the same way. It's not scripture. It's not a part of the Holy Scripture. It doesn't reveal to us something that's not also revealed in scripture. It doesn't tell us something contradictory. It's important to the formation of faith. It's important as instruction and as wisdom and as some history we'll talk about. So they're important, even if they're not scripture. And so it's okay to read them. And they're all available online. They're free. You can find them. But I do want to draw a distinction because sometimes you'll see on the History Channel uh, some story about the lost books of the Bible or the hidden books of the Bible or something like that. And it's really sensationalism. And a lot of times what they're talking about is not the Apocrypha. What they're talking about are things like uh, the Gospel of Barnabas, which is a complete fake. Now, there is something called the Epistle of Barnabas, which, we, which has been found uh, and is actually legitimate. It's not a part of our scripture. It's not even part of the Apocrypha. It's just something that was written that was important, considered at one time by the early church to be scripture, but it isn't anymore. Uh, but it's out there. We have copies of it, but that's not the same thing as what the sensationalism of cable television will tell you because they want to say, well, there's these books and they won't let anyone see them because it's going to destroy the church. It's all their secrets. It's everything they don't want you to know. No, most of that stuff is not real. 
They've been debunked. They've been delegitimized. We know that they're, they're not what they say they are. Now, how do we know that? Well, we have the manuscripts. We can go back and look. We can see what the early church was reading because of the letters they were writing. We can see the source material they referenced. We have ways of knowing these things or at least concluding these things. And so what we're going to talk about today is not these secret lost books. We're talking about books that were important to early Christians and that were important to the Jews at one time that are still a part of the Bible in other forms, just not our 66 books. And that's okay. That's okay. Because for them, they were stories that preserved their understanding of God. They were stories that encouraged. They were stories of wisdom. They were accounts of history. And that's important. Uh, some of them are, are purely works of fiction in a historical context. We'll talk about them. We'll get into them. So today we're going to talk about just a handful, not all of them, because not all of them are maybe worth talking about at length, but they might be worth you exploring on your own. But I want to talk about them because I want, you, want to get you comfortable with them, with understanding some of the stories here and why they're there, why they existed in the first place, and why we don't have them today. Okay? So let's jump into this. Now, I mentioned Esdras. Ezra was a really incredible guy. Uh, he was a great scholar of the law, an educated man. He helped to restore the law in Jerusalem, and he did a lot of writing. Uh, he did a lot of redacting, which is to collect and, and edit together a lot of pieces of the Old Testament. We owe him a great debt when it comes to looking at how much of the Old Testament we have. Uh, a lot of that comes from Ezra. So we have in the Hebrew Bible, um, you have First and Second Esdras. In some of the Orthodox Bibles, you might have 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Esdras, or you might have Ezra and Nehemiah, 2nd Esdras, 3rd uh, Esdras, or 3rd Esdras and 4th Esdras. It's going to be confusing to try and understand it, and it would be confusing for me to explain it. There's four books written by Ezra. Different groups put them together or separate them and count them differently. 1st Esdras is basically Ezra and Nehemiah, but... There are two chapters at the front end and two chapters at the back end that appear to have been written by Christians after the fact. And they're in Greek. We haven't found them in other languages. And so First Esdras has a little bit of question about who wrote it and how it was put together. But it's basically the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, you ought to read it. You ought to read it. It tells a lot about what was going on at the time, what the Jews were experiencing as they came out of captivity and returned to Egypt. Um, what we might call 2nd Esdras, which is 3rd and 4th Esdras, is, it has a, a great deal of uh, apocalyptic language. It's almost the revelation of the Old Testament, if I could use that term. Um, and there's evidence that some of the stuff in the Esdras collection are, is more contemporary. Uh, but it is a work of history. It was, it, parts of it are considered significant for Jews. Parts of it are rejected by Jews. And parts of it have been accepted by early Christians and rejected by early Christians. But it does sound very different in some respects to what we see demonstrated in the New Testament as to the nature of God. So um, Esdras. Esdras is one of those big ones because there's first, second, third, fourth, and it's so confusing. But that's why. That's why. They're just numbered different in different places. And so you'll see Esdras in some Hebrew uh, Hebrew Bibles, and it's just Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? That's what you need to know. 
All right, but let's get into some fun stories, all right? Let's start with one called Tobit, the book of Tobit. Um, the book of Tobit tells the story of a man named Tobit, as you might imagine. Now, Tobit uh, does a lot of traveling. He's actually very highly regarded by the king. Now, this is in the time of captivity, okay? This is in the, in, in the time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and so Tobit is known as a very faithful Jew. He's very faithful to God and to God's law, and he keeps the law. And he does some traveling and some work for the king. And while he's traveling, he deposits some money. He deposits his money in a place called Media. Now, the banking system of the time wasn't what it is today. It wasn't until the medieval times where banking developed uh, a system where we could deposit in one place and withdraw in another. But the earliest forms of banking involved depositing money or melted down and cut up fine uh, you know, jewelry or precious metals. So Tobit goes on his travels and deposits money in Media. And how do you get that money out? Well, they write a receipt, carve something on stone and break it. You have one half and they have one half. You bring that other half in, you can redeem it for your funds. But Tobit deposits this money and he goes home. The king dies and a new king comes to power who is not a fan of Tobit. And he uh, makes life much harder for the Jews. And so Tobit is now unable to travel, and that means he's unable to get his money. So he's beginning to feel the effects of poverty. Around this time, uh, because of the evil of the king, uh, Jews are being slaughtered. They're being killed, and they're not even being buried because of the lack of regard that the king has for the Jewish people. But Tobit, being a faithful Jew, buries the dead, buries his dead kinsmen, his dead countrymen. Uh, actually piece of useless trivia for you. There's a band called the Grateful Dead. And while they were reading the Apocrypha and probably indulging in hallucinogenic uh, assistance, came up with the name for their band based on this story. Because the Jews that had died, that no one was caring for, but Tobit buried, were the Grateful Dead. That's where the name comes from. They were the Grateful Dead. So one day, Tobit's sitting with his family, and they're celebrating the Pentecost, and they're having this celebratory feast, and someone says, Tobit, there's a Jew that has died and is just laying there. Tobit goes to bury him. When he comes back, he is now ceremonially unclean. He can't enter the house because of this meal. So he sleeps in the garden. While he's sleeping in the garden, a bird defecates in his eyes, for lack of a better term, and he's blinded. So now Tobit is blind, and he's poor. He relies on the help of his wife, Anna, his son, Tobias. He becomes bitter. He becomes angry. He's not the best person, uh, because what man is the best person when he can't provide for his family and he's left to be cared for by them? I mean, his, his ego is hurt, and his livelihood is threatened. And so Tobit, in his bitterness and anger, prays that God would take his life. Now, meanwhile, in a, uh, another place, a place called Ekbatana, there is a woman named Sarah. Sarah is actually a distant cousin of, uh, of Tobit, uh, and she too is praying that God will end her life. Why? Because Sarah was having trouble with men, trouble with her, her love life. Sarah was married. She was married seven times. 
And before you think that she must have been really hard to live with, uh, other way around, uh, or maybe not, but it wasn't because the relationships fell apart. See, Sarah, each time she got married, when she would go to consummate the marriage, okay, uh, a demon would appear. Uh, Asmodeus is the name of the demon. And that demon would kill her new husband before they consummated their, their marriage or as they consummated their marriage. So seven times she was married and seven times the men died on the wedding night. And that means the marriage proposals kind of dried up. She wasn't exactly dating material, much less marriage material. Word got around. And in that time, in that place, in that culture, to be an old maid was a source of shame. The rumors uh, circulated and Sarah prayed, just as Tobit, her cousin, prayed, or distant cousin, that, uh, that God would end their life. Now, God hears the prayers of Tobit. God hears the bitterness and the anger, and he sends an angel named Raphael. Raphael goes to Tobit's family and disguises himself in human form, taking on the name Azariah. And he goes with uh, Tobit's family, and he accompanies his son Tobias. Tobias is given, remember that money he deposited in Media? Well, Tobit gives that receipt, that other half of the stone to Tobias. He says, go to Media and get our money. And Raphael, as Azariah, says, oh, I can get you to Media. I'll guide you. So here Tobias goes off with an angel, not knowing it's an angel. Uh, they come across a river, and they're attacked by a vicious uh, demon fish, and they slaughter it. They kill it. And Azariah, Raphael, says, hang on to the innards of that fish. We're going to need them later. And so Tobias goes with Azariah, and they arrive in a place called Ecbatana, and he meets Sarah. And yes, it is his distant cousin, but marriage was somewhat kept in the family uh, in this culture. So we're not going to worry about the fact that they're sort of related. Tobias finds Sarah to be just gorgeous. He falls in love with her. He wishes to marry her. His parent, or her parents are even a little tentative about this because they know what's happened to the previous seven guys. Nonetheless, Tobias marries Sarah. And as they go to consummate their marriage, their wedding vows, uh, Azariah tells Tobias to burn the innards of that fish. Remember, they held on to the fish guts. And they burn, as a burnt offering, those fish guts. And it drives out this evil, deadly demon, Asmodeus, because, in fact, the fish that attacked them was the demon Asmodeus. And by sacrificing the offering of his remains, they drive out the demon. Sarah is cured of the possession, and Tobias lives. He survives the wedding night, and so does Sarah. And so they are now happily ever after, they recover the funds from uh, Media. They return home to Tobit and Anna. And oh, by the way, Tobit is cured of his blindness. And Azariah reveals himself to be Raphael, the angel. Now, there is not a single scholar that believes the story of Tobit is historically, literally true. It is a morality tale. It is an encouraging story. It is an allegory because it is meant to encourage the Jews to remain faithful, even in their captivity and even in their bitterness and even in their anger. It's meant to be a story that encourages. Now, if you think that seems silly and why would anyone make that a part of their scripture, how many uh, books have you purchased or read 
that are of a spiritually encouraging nature, even works of fiction. How many of you read the Left Behind series? How many of you have seen the movies? How many of you paid to go to the theater to watch something like Fireproof or, or God's Not Dead? Okay, we have these stories. They're not scripture, but they're meant to encourage us by the story they tell. That's Tobit. By the way, Tobit was referenced in the New Testament. I don't know if you caught it. Remember a group of Sadducees, very hypocritically, go to ask Jesus his opinion on the afterlife. And they ask him the question, if a woman is married seven times, who's hus who, who will be her husband in heaven? The story that they're referencing, the, the marriage seven times, was a story they all knew very well. It was the story of Tobit. So we see it pop up again in that reference in the New Testament. Okay, how about the book of Judith? Oh, no, this is a good story. See, and again, this one, not literal. No scholar accepts it as fact. It is a work of historical fiction, but again, a morality tale. This one involves the story of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, a very real king. He decides to go to war and conquer more territory, take over the world. And so he goes to all the territories that he currently occupies, and he asks them to pay tribute to fund his war. Israel says no, because there is no God but Jehovah, right? And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I am God. And they say, no, we don't recognize you as God. We're not funding your war. So Nebuchadnezzar vows revenge, and he is warned, don't go after revenge with Israel because God's on their side. And he, he, he bristles at that notion, so he sends his general... Holofernes, to go and, and, and enact revenge on Israel. So Holofernes goes uh, about charging ahead to begin laying waste to the region of Israel. And he comes to a place called Bethulia. And he, in an attempt to conquer the city of Bethulia, he assembles the Assyrian troops. They cut off the water supply and lay siege to the land. And the men... Uh, the, the, the armies in Bethulia began talking, maybe we should surrender. Maybe we should just give up. But there's a woman named Judith, a particularly beautiful woman, a widow, and particularly faithful to the Lord. And she decides to take matters, matters into her own hands. And she does this by taking a basket with provisions for a few days of food and going across enemy lines to the camp where Holofernes is the general. And she presents herself to him and says, look, General, uh, I know you want to get revenge on Israel. The problem is God's on their side. But God will abandon them if they sin against him, and I know how to make that happen. So she says, I'm going to stay with you for a few days, and I'm going to demonstrate that you can trust me. I'm going to gain your trust. And see, I've even brought my own food in the basket. That comes up later. Remember the basket, okay? But she says, part of the deal is every night I'm going to go down to the water to bathe and I need privacy when I do that. So you can't send anyone with me. I get to go down there and come back on my own. Holofernes says this is fine. After a while, Holofernes, as all great macho generals who are spending a lot of time with a beautiful female do, begins to want her uh, for himself. In fact, he says to her, if you don't sleep with me, people are going to think I must be a homosexual. That's what he says. And so now Judith knows she's in good. So she says, well, that's great. I'll accompany you to a party tonight. And they have this great feast. And Holofernes becomes intoxicated. 
to the point that he, when, when they go back to the tent together, because that's what he's expecting is going to happen, he passes out. And it's while he's passed out that Judith cuts off his head. In fact, it took her a couple of whacks to get it. And she puts the head in the basket. And then it's time to go down to the water to bathe, and the guards can't come with her. And, and of course, they think he's just in there resting because he's had quite a very full night of, of partying and drinking and romance. And so she goes down, and she returns to the city of Bethulia with a basket that no longer contains her food, but now contains the head of Holofernes, which they throw over the wall, and the Assyrian army is completely at a loss, and they scatter and are defeated. Again, not a literal piece of history, but a story that was known and repeated and told amongst the Jews because it helped inform them of God's faithfulness and of the ways in which he would provide for them if they were faithful. All right, now we come to the additions to Daniel. And again, that's what it's called, okay? It's not just called Daniel, it's called the additions to Daniel. It's a separate thing. Why is it separate? Well, that has a lot to do with Daniel itself. Daniel becomes a bit of a folk hero to the Jews, okay? Daniel was a real person. I think a lot of what happens in Daniel is literally his history, and it's true. But there are also some stories in Daniel and in the additions to Daniel that are probably more like folk tales. Um, they, they put Daniel in a, a, a story of heroics, and, um, and, and, and that's fine. We think that that's the case because we find these stories in different languages and not necessarily in the Hebrew. looks like they might have been written later. Maybe they're in Aramaic or Syriac. Sometimes some of the stories change languages in mid-story. So we can see kind of the history of their editing and their process. That's why it's not considered scripture. But listen to some of the stories. Because Daniel, the additions to Daniel, contain what would probably be considered the first ever detective stories or mystery stories. Who done it? We have a story called uh, Bell and the Dragon. Okay, Bell and the Dragon uh, is about uh, idols that were being worshipped um, by, by, by the king. And we know Daniel, you know, you know the story of Daniel. The, he interprets dreams and he gets into good favor with the, with the king. Uh, and constantly, because here is a Jewish boy that is in good with the king and trusted by the king, a lot of the people around the king don't like Daniel and they want to get rid of him. And there's many efforts to do that. So these stories of Bell and the Dragon sound very much like those other stories. Someone's trying to trip Daniel up and to get rid of him. So there's this idol that the king has built called Bell, uh, an idol of a serpent or, or, or something of that nature. And it's in a room with a table. And people, they, they, they lay food and wine out for this, this idol, this god Bell, every day. And then every morning when they get up, the food and the drink is gone. Now, people are noticing that Daniel doesn't worship Bell. And the king says to Daniel, um, Daniel, why don't you worship Bell? And he goes, well, I worship the one true God. Yeah, but why not worship Bell? And he says, I only worship the living God. Bell is not living. That is clay and bronze. That is not a living thing. And the king's indignant. He says, well, of course it's living. We lay food out every day. And by, you know, by the next morning, we open it and, and the food's gone. And he says, I don't believe that Bell is, is alive. 
and the king said, brings the priests in and he says, listen, he's, he's very upset. He says, if we lay food out and it's gone tomorrow and you can prove to me that this, this God, this, this image, this idol is alive, then I'm going to kill Daniel. But if you can't show me that it's a living thing, then I'm going to kill you. That's what he says to the priests. And the priests say, oh, king, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set the food and the wine out. We're going to lock the door. You can put your seal on the door so no one can go in. And the next morning, you're going to see that Bell is real. And they said, and if we're right, you kill Daniel. And if we're wrong, you kill us. And Daniel says, okay, sounds good. What no one knew, but what Daniel must have known, was that there was a secret passageway with a door that went into that room. And every night the priests, along with their wife and their, and their children, wives and children, would go into the room and have a big party with all the food that they'd laid out for Bell. So they prepare the food and they put it in the room. But Daniel takes some ashes and spreads it across the floor. And then they shut the door and they seal it. And that night they go have their party. And the next morning, this king breaks the seal, unlocks the door, opens it, and the food is gone. And he rejoices. Praise Bell, he says. And as he starts to enter the room, Daniel grabs him and says, wait a minute. Look at the floor. And there are the footprints of the priests who have been going into the room to make this idol seem as though it was alive. And, of course, the king puts them to death for their deception. The other story is the, the story of the dragon, which is very similar. Uh, the, uh, the king is worshiping, or they, they worship this dragon. And this would have been, this is, this is a living creature. Uh, it could have been a crocodile. It could have been uh, maybe something that was imported, like a Komodo dragon or some kind of serpent. But they're worshiping it. And the king says to Daniel, okay, now this one certainly is living. Why not worship this one? Why continue to worship your God? And he says, I worship the one true God. And the king says, yes, but this is a living God. And he says, I could kill that God of yours, that serpent, without a sword or, or a club. I could do it. And the king says, okay, I'll take that bet. And so Daniel prepares a cake made of fat and hair and pitch and feeds it to the dragon or the serpent who eats it and his intestines explode, kills him. Now, we know that certain animals do not react well to eating certain things. Daniel knew this, and he killed it without sword, without club, and he looks at this inside-out serpent and says to the king, look at what you've been worshiping. Now, the priests are indignant, and they tell the king, actually, they start accusing the king of being a Jew, because he, uh, you know, he, he's, he loves Daniel so much and they have this relationship. And so they tell the king, if you don't take Daniel and get rid of him, we're going to kill you. Throw him into the lion's den. Ah, sound familiar? It does. So they actually, they starve these lions for, for a time and then throw Daniel in. So they're going to devour Daniel right away, right? Meanwhile, way back in Jerusalem, there's a prophet named Habakkuk and Habakkuk has just made dinner when an angel of the Lord appears and says, Habakkuk, don't take this dinner to go eat out in the field. You need to go to Babylon 
and feed that to Daniel. And Habakkuk says, uh, I've never been to Babylon. I don't know anything about Babylon. And the angel grabs him by the hair. And I can only imagine what this must have looked like or felt like. Grabs him by the hair and flies him to Babylon, sets him down in the lion's den. He gives the food to Daniel and then the angel grabs him and takes him right back to where he was. And that's where, <laughs> that's all he is in the story. But Daniel uh, eats the food and he is provided for in his time in the den. And the king comes and finds him the next day alive. The stories of Bell and the dragon. Probably not literal history. Probably folk tales about a man who was highly regarded for his faithfulness and his defeat of false gods. Also, in additions to Daniel, we have something like we have prayers that are offered um, by well, by different name, but remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, see those, those were Babylonian names that they were given. Uh, their Hebrew names were different, and one of those, uh, one of those three uh, has a prayer that is written, and it's in the additions to Daniel. It's the perspective from inside the fire. Pretty fascinating. <clears throat> we also have the story of Susanna, another detective story of sorts. Uh, in fact, this one, like, this one should be made into a movie and it should be produced by Dick Wolf, the law and order guy. That's what it should say in the final credits because it's like a, it's like a police procedural. So Susanna is this very beautiful woman who is married, uh, who has a, a habit of walking through the garden in the heat of the day to cool off. And the elders, the, the elders are beginning to take notice of her and to lust after her. In fact, a couple of them sneak out into the garden every day to watch her and lust after her as she is walking on her stroll. And they discover this because they try to hide behind the same tree. <laughs> and they find each other and they say, you know, we would love to, uh, we would love to, to be with this woman. She's so beautiful. And so they, they kind of hatch a plan. And as luck would have it, Susanna decides one day that she's going to go and bathe in the water in the garden. And she asks her attendant to bring her, her her soap and her oils, and then to lock the gate. And when they lock the gate, they lock Susanna in the garden with these two elders. Now they approach her and they say, if you don't sleep with us, um, we're going to tell everyone that we caught you in here committing adultery with another young man because she's married. And she ponders this for a little bit, what to do, what would be the right thing to do to violate God's law or to give in to this threat. And she decides that giving in to the threat is probably better because she doesn't want to violate God's law. She'd rather have her life ruined by false accusation. And by the way, false accusation stuck, especially against women. It wasn't questioned. Um, and if you didn't join in in the punishment of this false accusation, you were guilty too. So the two elders begin screaming uh, and drawing attention. People come and they tell the people, we've caught this woman in the midst of adultery. Now, no one happens to ask, where did the man go? They just say that, that, that she's been caught in adultery and, and we've got to, we, she must be killed. She must be put to death. They begin marching through the streets and this mob is all riled up and there is Daniel. And as they pass by Daniel, remember, it's obligatory. Everybody joins in uh, in carrying out the punishment. And Daniel pipes up and says, this woman's blood will not be on my hands. 
and everyone stops. And Daniel's in a bit of a pickle here because these elders are saying, you mean you're not going to join in? Do you believe this woman? And he says, I'll tell you what, why don't we have a chat? And he turns to the people and he says, I want you to separate these two men. Now, if you're a police officer, law enforcement, you know that one of the first things you do when you have a couple of suspects is you get them in separate rooms and you make them think that you know the whole story and that the other guy is over there singing and just telling everything and throwing this guy under the bus. And if they don't tell the truth, they're going down for this. And so that's what Daniel does. This is, early, this is the basis of a lot of police work and interrogation today. And, and this story written all these years ago is telling the same thing. So Daniel separates the two and he goes to each one and he starts asking them questions. He didn't give them time to get their story, story straight. Well, where were these two people when they were engaged in adultery? What did he look like? What, kind, what tree were they under when you caught them? Uh, and by the way, I already know the whole story. Your buddy over there already ratted you out. And if you don't tell me the truth, and he proves through this very... Uh, very clever questioning that they're lying and they're caught in their lie. Susanna is exonerated. Her and her husband live happily ever after and the elders are put to death. So another story of Daniel, the folk hero of the Jews, part of the additions to Daniel. Again, not scripture, but a story of encouragement for a people who needed it. All right, now we come to a work of history. And this will be the last one we cover. A work of history called Maccabees. Why is Maccabees important? Well, it's important as history. Now, again, it's not found in our scripture. It's not widely considered to be scripture, though it is included in many uh, religious texts and religious collections. The reason it's important for us is because it tells us a lot about the history of the world and the environment that Jesus stepped into when he was born. This takes us from that intertestamental period and fills in the history to show us how we got things like Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots and how the high priest developed the way that it was when Jesus went to trial and, and where we get uh, some of the, the political issues of the day like Rome, where do they enter the picture? So the books of Maccabees, and there's a few of them, they tell the story of how all that happened. Now, it has to do with uh, the Greeks. You have Philip, the king, and he, is he, he goes about conquering a lot of the world. But his son Alexander is there just chomping at the bit because he wants to conquer the world, Alexander the Great. And he does just that, <clears throat> but he dies at a very young age. When Alexander dies... The territories are split up amongst his generals, and there were many, many territories and nations that developed, but there's only two you need to really know. The Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucians that were in the north. Um, and if you looked at a map and you were to see this, Seleu the Seleucians are up here and the Ptolemies are down here. Remember Ptolemy II? He ordered the translation of the, of the Hebrew into Greek because Greek becomes the unified language of the world at this point. Okay, That's important. Because the message of Christ is carried into so many different parts of the world in the hundred years after his death. And it's only possible because they have a unified language. All right. That's why our New Testament originally was in Greek. 
So the Ptolemies in the south, the Seleucians in the north, and they're constantly fighting. But guess what's smack in the middle of them and changes hands over and over and over? Israel. Israel becomes this football, this territorial football for them. So they fight over it. And eventually it's controlled by the Seleucians and they have a king. Oh, by the way, in this time, the Jews are constantly exposed to Greek culture. And they become what's called Hellenized because the Greeks are referred to as Hellenistic um, after Helen. And uh, the Jews become more and more Hellenized. Uh, the culture of intellectualism and of their language begins to be pretty attractive to the Jews to the point that they think, well, if, if we just become Greeks, then we'll be accepted and we'll be respected. And so we have a great momentum of Jews becoming Hellenized. And at that time, Seleucian, uh, who controls Jerusalem, he wants to absolutely get rid of the Jews altogether. And he wants to put a high priest in place that's his guy. And so he begins working the political machinations through bribery and through assassination to put his people in power as high priests. And um, the, the Seleucian king, by the way, was um, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. Um, and so he, he comes into the picture here, Hellenizing these Jews, absolutely desecrates the temple, um, uh, destroys it not, in a, in a, not like with a wrecking ball. He goes in and steals and plunders all of the contents of the temple, defiles the holy places, sacrifices a pig on the altar. I mean, he wasn't there to just conquer the Jews. He wanted to destroy them from the inside out, destroy their culture, destroy their law, and make them all, all Greeks or Seleucians. And so he begins, he built a big fortress in the middle of Jerusalem called the Citadel and, and begins a process of reform that actually makes the practice of the Mosaic law illegal. So he bans circumcision, right? Now that's, you can't keep that a secret. We, we, we don't think of this the same way they did. You can't keep that a secret because um, nudity was a pretty regular occurrence, especially for men in that time. If you were out on a fishing boat, you didn't, you, you didn't have a big wardrobe, so you didn't want to mess up your clothes. So you fished and you worked in the nude. Uh, nudity was a regular occurrence, especially with men. You couldn't hide the, the state of your circumcision or non-circumcision. So circumcision is banned. There were even adult Jewish men in order to be Hellenized, in order to become Greeks, that had uncircumcisions done, okay? If you understand what I'm trying to convey. Um, and, and all this is going on. Jews are just handing over their story and giving up and, and, and accepting a Greek culture. And meanwhile, just about 17 miles outside of Jerusalem is a very pious and very faithful priest named Matthias, Matthias Maccabees. He sees this going on, and he is already fed up with these Hellenistic Jews. He's fed up with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and his laws, and he starts a revolt. Um, he begins a revolt. The, the details of it involve them. They, had, they were forcing uh, these Jews to renounce their Judaism 
and they would stand before everyone and renounce their Judaism. And he refused, so another Jew was going to stand up and do it for him, and he killed him. He took a sword out and he killed him. And that was like the shot heard around the world. That began a war, the great Jewish revolt. And so Matthias, lead, the, Matthias Maccabees leads these pious Jews in guerrilla warfare against the Seleucians and eventually uh, drives them out of Jerusalem. Now, how they drove them out of Jerusalem was when the Maccabees, and by the way, their name means hammer, the hammer, which is just beautiful. Uh, Matthias, by the way, was killed um, in a battle because they were so pious in keeping the law, they would not fight on the Sabbath because that was doing work. And so they were attacked and slaughtered on a Sabbath. Matthias was killed. But his son takes over. Uh, and he had a couple of sons that took over at different points. When they go from fighting battle and doing war to politics is where problems arise. And eventually the Maccabees family disappears from, from significance. But they ally with the Romans to drive out the Greeks. And then Rome takes over. And now you have a whole other set of problems. During this time, the high priesthood is, is corrupted by politics. Families are actually buying the priesthood and trading it amongst their family members and rotating the high priesthood amongst different groups or political parties that have developed. You had the, uh, the conservatives, the Pharisees, uh, who kept the law. They were a pretty popular group. You had the liberals of the time, the Sadducees. Now, they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the supernatural. You had the Essenes. You also had the Zealots. Now, the Zealots were the extremists of the time. And so this is the world that Jesus comes into. Doesn't that seem like something you'd want to know? Doesn't that seem like interesting and important information? Well, it is, and it was, and that's why it was considered important enough to be included in the Apocrypha, but not significant by the early church to be included in the canon. Now, why do I tell you all this, and why do I spend all this time sharing these stories? Because these aren't all of them. These are just the ones that I find interesting and really enjoy. Because they're not just magical, made-up things. They're real stories. Now, they're not all historically true, but they were stories that were really told. They were really shared. They were really passed around. They were really significant to the Jews and to the early Christians. For hundreds of years, they were significant. Now, I'm not saying they ought to be a part of our scripture. I'm not saying that they rise to the level of the book of Romans or Hebrews or the Gospels. I'm saying that they're important. They were important to early Christians. They were special. They were revered in some cases. We've always had stories that help to further our own story. We've always had stories that were meant to encourage. And we've had stories that are meant to preserve our identity. We have stories in our American history, some that are historically true, some that are just stories like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. Well, that didn't happen but we told that story to preserve our national identity as people who chose as their leader a very honest man. 
we preserve our identity through our stories, whether you're talking about the United States of America or you're talking about the people of Israel or you're talking about the early Christians. When we lose our stories, we lose our identity and we are very quickly forgotten and erased from the world. Stories are important. These are stories that were important. They might not be scripture, but I thought that as we're discussing how our scripture was formed, not just how it was written and preserved, but now we're into the territory of how it's assembled into the 66 books we recognize, I thought it might be interesting to talk about the books that didn't make it and why they didn't make it, but why they're kind of interesting. So there you have it. Esdras, Tobit, Judith, additions to Daniel, Maccabees. There are others, the Wisdom of Solomon. Um, there's the, the, the book of uh, Baruch. There's, there's lots of good stuff in there. I encourage you to read them, understand them for what they are, and let them be an encouragement to you, or at least a window into the time and into the people. Now, how do we know that these things were considered scripture or that they were a part of early uh, documents and early writings? How do we know that the scriptures we have today are what they say they are? How do we know that the gospels are accurate? You know, we have, we've had all of these years and all these centuries of writing and copying and translating and retranslating and editing and compiling, and we've lost things and we've rediscovered. How do we know that what we have when we read the book of Mark or when we read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, how do we know that's what Paul wrote? How do we know that's what the gospel writer wrote? How do we know it's real? How do we know it's accurate? And how do we know what belongs? Ah, well, we check the manuscripts. We go back and we find the manuscripts and we find when they were written and we piece things together and we look for the outliers and we set them aside and we determine what's what. And in so many cases, when we go back and look at those ancient manuscripts, they match. By the providence and power of God, these words have been preserved. And next week, I'm going to tell you a story, one of many, many stories, but one story about how those manuscripts were found and how they would have been preserved and about a man named uh, Constantine Van Tischendorf. Join me next week for that, all right? Thanks.